And once again, we're with our favorite child psychologist, Katiana Asman. Yeah, I always love it when she drops by and um, has a conversation with us about stuff because she just simplifies it so, uh, you know, much easier than exactly. to understand. All right. Well, what are we talking about today? We're talking about stimming. So, uh, Katiana, can you tell us about stimming? So, stimming is sort of an abbreviated term for what we call self-stimulatory or self-stimulating behaviors, right? So, anything that sort of activates your five senses, so you know our five senses are touch, sound, smell, taste and wait I just lost it (laughs) so it's like touch smell taste sight and sound there you go okay okay. so um, the stimming has a lot of different functions and it is most commonly associated with individuals who are on the autism spectrum so if you've ever had a child who's needed to go for a developmental assessment for autism you would have heard your um, therapist or your uh, doctor talk about stimming And I think if anyone has tried to Google stimming, the first thing that would come up are articles about autism because it's one of the main criteria that we look for. Um, However, it is a common misconception that it is only uh, a behavior that's specific to kids who are on the autism spectrum. In fact, there's a belief that everybody on earth stims to a certain extent. Okay, so let me just ask you here, just um, could you give us some examples of what a stim is or what stimming is? Hmm. Mm. So for children who are on the spectrum, you would see often sort of big body movements. So things like flapping their arms or rocking their body back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but more kind of like day-to-day type stims, which is like I said, we kind of assume everyone does it. It's something as simple as clicking a pen when you're at work um, or drumming your fingers on the table. JD's like, yes. I do that. JD's like taking his hands <laughs> off the table. But that's yeah. just a bad habit, isn't it? Yeah, but see, that's the thing. Like, pro- it probably serves some type of underlying purpose. So it might have been something you might notice that when you're sedentary, for example, like, so this is something that I do. When I'm kind of writing reports and not really doing very much, I notice the pen clicking happens more often, right? So mm. there is probably some type of function behind it, either to kind of help uh, help you with focus, help you to kind of self-soothe. Um, and it's probably something you don't even realize you do anymore. So here's a question. Like, I have to get up and walk no matter what I'm doing. I, I sit down for a, a you know, minute amount of time and I have to move. Like I have to get up. Like here in the studio, I'm forever. Like sometimes I'm standing there, I'm sitting and, you know, um, is that also a stim? Um, kind of. So basically the understanding about, about stimming is that it's when you need to engage one of your different sensory profiles um, in order to feel more comfortable. Now that word kind of can mean a lot of things. So either to comfort yourself when you're distressed, to comfort yourself when you're bored, to comfort yourself when you're feeling physically kind of uncomfortable. Um, so that's kind of why um, you know the, the lines with regards to stimming are kind of vague when we look at behaviors like yours where it's about kind of not being able to sit still, kind of being more fidgety or restless, I guess you could say. Um, They've even started considering things like nail biting as part of stimming in some cases. So the the lines are a little bit more gray when it comes to these types of behaviors, which is why it's often something that is associated with those big body movements when you look look it up on the internet. So what about like if I just like mess around my beard and everything, stuff like that, or I flip my pen and... Yep, yep. So all, all currently things that they say are part of stimming, even things like twirling your hair um, or uh, something that I do, like, for example, when I'm uh, you know in a meeting or if I'm nervous, I tend to kind of like fidget with my hands a little bit. You'd never can, realize that you're doing it. Can I show you what I do for every time we do an interview? 
I play with the telephone cord. I sit there <laughs> and I twirl it one way and then I twirl it the other way. Oh my god! I have to be doing something because otherwise I just she I, doesn't I, know I, what I, to do with her hands. I just feel uncomfortable in my body. So that's interesting. All right, yeah. but I tell you what. Let's let's we've we've gotten to the surface of what is stimming, but let's break it down even further. What mm-hmm. happens in the body and mind? When that Ooh. happens. We're diving a little bit deeper here, JD. Are you ready for this? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> okay. what's happening this summer? So, Katya, let, Katya, let's break it down even further. What's actually happening like in the body and the mind when you're stimming or when you need mm. to stim? Mm. So, you know, like we mentioned earlier, stimming activates or deactivates your sensory profiles depending on what type of behavior that you do. So when we're looking at our senses, we're receiving sensory input, sort of sensory data from the world around us, right? So our brain is processing sound, all the different sound, all of the different senses when we're being exposed to it. And these different um, sensory stimuli have the capacity to kind of do different things, right? So like JD was mentioning, playing with his beard, right? For example. He's very uh, freaky when he does that. Yeah. Especially when it's someone who's never met him and he sits there and he's like, oh. No, that's the thing I do. I don't even realize I do it, you know? Yes, that's exactly it, right? Most people who um, who stim don't even realize that they're doing it, right? But I'm sure that in JD's brain, there is some type of soothing quality that comes with the tactile data or the tactile stimuli that his fingers are receiving when he's stroking sort of the strands of hair on his face. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be kind of his brain kind of teach, uh, self-soothing him when he's a little bit more sort of distressed or when he's a little bit busy. Um, so it has to, to identify kind of what the functions are kind of vary from person to person Mm -hmm. Um, but essentially what's happening in your brain and in your body is your brain is processing the data that your body is receiving through these five senses um, and is um is going to kind of address whatever issue that's kind of underlying so whether it's distress or soothing or anything like that right so um does it actually um create a a sort of a, a state for you to be able to receive more, like I know with my kiddo and and other kiddos as well, um, fidgeting or whatever they're they're doing um, actually allows them to sort of hear and process what like what the teacher's trying to say, for example. So, so is it because it sort of wipes out what's going on that's overstimulating them so they can focus like how does that that work yes yes exactly so children who have what we call sensory processing difficulties for example right which um, of that children on the autism spectrum do fall within that category but you are able it is possible for you to be a what we call neurotypical or typical child or a typical individual and have sort of heightened or sort of what we call it hyper or hypo sensitivity mm-hmm. to sensory um, stimuli, right? So a child who is, for example, um, hypo sensitized to something is kind of like what happens when you go on a plane and your ears pop. Mm-hmm. So you kind of feel like you're underwater. It's not a painful experience. It's just really distracting and really kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do is we try to pop our ears. And that's kind of my, the way that my brain kind of recognizes um, when children need to stim. It's about addressing some type of discomfort. And so children who are, for example, on the autism spectrum or who have severe SPD, sensory processing disorder, or even children who have ADHD, which is now being shown to have a lot of connectivity with sensory issues. Um, they kind of It's kind of like walking into a room that's way too noisy. So their mm-hmm. sensory profiles are going all over the place and they find it hard to focus and to do the task at hand because they're being so distracted by all the bombarded, stimuli around. Bombarded, basically. Yeah, bombarded, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so engaging in a stim 
or having an outlet with which they can kind of uh, allow the brain to process all of this noise mm. helps with things like focus in the long run. So, so that, yeah. So let me just ask you something. Maybe someone doesn't doesn't have any of these sort of Ooh. stims or fidgets or whatever you want to call it, but they Ooh. they sort of. Um, are so dealing with having anxious states, for example, is it something that you could learn to do, like twiddling your 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 pen mm-hmm, or whatever, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. actually trigger that sense of sort of better well being in your body on purpose? Does it work that way? Yes, abs- I mean absolutely. That's why fidget spinners and fidget cubes became such a thing, mm-hmm. right? It isn't so much that it's catered towards individuals who do uh, have these type of sort of fidgety behaviors, but it's also very calming, right? Um, I, I I don't have any literature that I was able to find to kind of support this theory, but I wonder if it's also the same with like certain noises, so like ASMR and sort of ambient kind mm-hmm. of sounds. Yeah. It is triggering your sound system, your auditory. Profile, right? So it could be something that has the same function. So there are an infinite amount of stims out there. Everybody has slightly different ones, right? So, um, but the general consensus is um, if it's not something that impacts your functioning, so if JD's beard stroking, which I see him doing a little bit of now, <laughs> if JD's beard stroking obviously doesn't hurt anyone, right? And it's not to the point where it's, you know, creeping people out so people don't want to socialize with him, for example. Um, (laughs) But if it's something that is impacting upon his functioning, then it would be something that people would need to intervene on or he would need to intervene on. But otherwise, people tend to kind of let it go. Right. The thing is, though, now... I, I, I realized that now that I used to walk around with my little uh, drumstick and everything because I, oh. I figured out how to move that thing all over the place. Okay. That, that's actually one of those. But I love the fact that uh, Katiana actually mentioned that it's uh, it's something that you, you're overwhelmed sometimes with a lot of things mm. that's coming out mm. outside. But then now, the thing is, who stims? We realize that everybody kind of stims at some yeah. point, right? But how do you know... Um, how do you know uh, whether or not we're sort of on the spectrum or we're just stimming exactly. a bit. So I love the fact that like stimming is all inclusive. Everybody we all do it. it yeah. And uh, I'd love to sort of start categorizing all the different things I do in different but it, areas. It's kind of coming to know that it's not an issue. It's not really a problem, right? Right, until it is a problem. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So Katiana, you know... Um, we've sort of talked about the fact that stimming is something more uh, usually connected with autism or the spectrum, but everybody kind of does it to some degree or can do it. Um, Can we talk about sort of the line of, of, of knowing whether or not perhaps our stimming is showing us that we are um, Mm -hmm. on the spectrum perhaps and want to sort of investigate that further and when it's not and, and even the emotions that go around. Mm. You see, the thing about about sort of stimming and, and um, you know, sensory behaviors in general, it's a really, really new type of understanding, right? Definitely newer than even our understanding of autism. And so, you know, up to probably about 20 years ago, and I could be getting the timing wrong, but a while ago, people were um, diagnosing children uh, as being on the spectrum just strictly because they had sensory issues without having all the other symptoms. And so it's only recently that we've begun to acknowledge that, you know, you can have, um, you know, sensory issues or what I mentioned earlier, sensory processing difficulties mm-hmm. without even being on the spectrum and have it occur as a, as a almost like a standalone, right? And so whenever an individual comes to me um, worried that they might be on the spectrum, the first thing that I do mention is that autism is a developmental condition. So it is something that would have needed to exist from, from needed to have existed from birth. Right. So you wouldn't have an adult, you know, in his 20s or 30s or 40s showing up and saying, you know, I've suddenly, you know, oh, right, right, I've okay. suddenly become, yeah, right, yeah, no, it's okay, suddenly okay, developed right. it. No such so, thing. 
Um, the other thing also is I tell people, you know, it's actually really hard to meet the criteria for autism, you know, and, and I've actually had people say to me like, oh, I don't want to bring my child in to see you because I'm sure that you're going to find something. And I often say like, no, that's not really the case. It's actually really difficult to meet the criteria. So there are two umbrella, I call them umbrella categories of symptoms that we would need to look for. Um, the first is what we call um uh, social reciprocal communication issues. So this is where we would see possibly a delay in speech development. We'd have, um, and even if they are verbal, they'd have difficulty sort of conducting themselves in a social setting. So not really understanding social cues, not being able to identify emotion in another person. So we'd be seeing this difficulty with having two-way interactions and communications with people mm -hmm. um, well beyond sort of what is age appropriate. So I'm not expecting a two-year-old to be very talkative or very social but if you are for example five or six and you're not able to identify that you know anger in one person or not really knowing how to initiate play in another child that will be something that's atypical so that's one umbrella and there's about six or seven different symptoms that we check off on that side mm -hmm. and then we have the second umbrella which is what we call rigid and repetitive behaviors and that's where stimming falls under that so you'll see kind of things like flapping and spinning and all of that stuff. But in addition, these children would be very rigid, meaning they kind of need things to go their way or the highway. So they have these routines and these schedules um, or these schemas in their head that we're often not privy to. And if you violate them, so if there's a change in routine, they can't cope with that very well okay. so um you know and and so this these are just some of the things that we look for so it's actually really difficult to meet the criteria i believe there's about like 15 different symptom points in the dsm that we go through um and you know again something that would need to have existed from from early childhood so that would be the first thing that i would try to talk a person through if they think that their stimming is due to sensory behaviors um but it is you know again completely possible for children and i've seen a lot of kids who come in here who have you know great social skills great language skills who are not rigid in any sense but are just very very particular about certain things like the fabrics that they wear they're not fans yes. of getting this you uh, can't stand it and it's like you it's not even negotiable it is it is distressing yeah. to them wearing that that's very yeah yeah, yeah. all right so, the so they're very about, very particular how about if like for kids who are on a spectrum so if things don't go their way or in, in a certain way, things distress them or get them emotional and then they start to stim, right? For us, like yeah. I start to do all this funky stuff and I'm, I'm bored in a in a meeting or, yeah. you know, sometimes like do do we have different trigger points or is it like a different level? Or if I'm distressed, will I get yeah. to be to a point where I'm like, I'll do even more drastic. Extreme. Yeah. Fidgeting in a yeah. way. I think it's a lot less rare um, that you see sort of these bigger things. But then, you know, in you know, you have seen sort of cases where, for example, in a situation of extreme distress. So, like, I work in a hospital. These are scenes that are not, you know, um, strange or odd to me when someone has lost a loved one or if someone is, you know, anxiously waiting for someone to come out of emergency or to come out of an operating theater. You often see people kind of holding themselves or kind of just rocking in a corner yes. or just shaking. These are all things that, you know, that do happen in under extreme duress, right? Mm -hmm. So it is, it is possible, but definitely more rare day to day, right? So I wouldn't be too concerned short of you having a problem 
proper sensory difficulty that you would kind of get this huge sort of full body stim um, when you're distressed. It would be kind of more milder things. So one of the things I identified about myself, about my stimming, is that I'm very sensitive to tactile. So the funny thing that happens in my house is my mom has got these like um, rope, Uh, fabric carpets so these jute and sisal carpets in the house Mm -hmm. and i can't stand on them and it feels like i've got nails at the bottom i I know what you mean i know what you mean i just yeah Yeah. it's just so uncomfortable and so you see you see me kind of doing these like walks around the squares of the i do that i do that i avoid because the texture just is so acutely uncomfortable Yes. It's, it's nice to know I'm not the only one who goes through this as well. <laughs> oh, so, really? so, it's, so I love the fact that it's actually quite normal that yeah. if we yes. pace, if we're stressed, and if we, we avoid certain things that make mm. us uncomfortable and everything, yeah. right? But the thing is also, I'm wondering, that means generally, and I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, that means we're generally all kind of on the spectrum and these are generally okay things to go through. Talking about our new favorite subject, stimming, and how we all do it, and, and how, how it's, it's actually regular it's and a normal very thing beneficial to us. It's how we regulate, right? It's part of like self care to be able to do this. So I'm loving this conversation, Katiana. A lot of people I know are fidget, tap, bounce, rock, or like me, you know, have to keep getting up from their seat. Maybe that's ADHD. I don't know, but um, it's impossible for me to sit for any length of time without doing that. However, I do know that it's very disruptive. Like for example, JD sitting next to me. Sometimes I'm, he's opposite me. And I'm forever like fidgeting, squirming, having to move. I cannot, I can't bear sitting still. And I, I'm always aware that he's just like a rock in place. He doesn't move. He's very calm and zen out about it. But me, no, I'm, my legs are going. I'm forever uncrossing my legs. I'm doing this. Now, that's going to be disruptive to people. Yeah. How do I think about changing my behavior whilst also getting my needs met? Mm. So, I mean, like that's that's kind of the line that we look for, right? Is that if something is disrupt is disruptive to yourself or to another person, that's when sort of some time of some type of intervention or some type of plan needs to come into place, right? But generally, like we've covered everything else, like everyone on earth stims, everything else that isn't disruptive tends to kind of just be ignored. So you're not having a support group for people who click pens, for example. Right? <laughs> Although so, I mean, that sounds like a good idea. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> They're you know? usually more angry, the ones who pen clickers. Oh, aren't pen they? clickers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you don't see like a support group of that. But I think, you know, what I would, I would say is to kind of, there are a couple of things that you could do. I mean, in the mind, Milder form, there are sort of uh, strategies that you can employ for yourself, and that might include doing a little bit of an experimentation with yourself when you're at home to kind of figure out what are some suitable substitutes for getting up and moving around that help you do feel equally as relieved or equally as um, uh, as comforted um, without having to uh, get up and move around. Hello. Oh, I think it's stuck. Okay. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so one of the things that you could do is do a little bit of uh, research or experimentation at home, if you will, and trying to identify what are some suitable substitutes um, that could act, that you could actually uh, call upon that help you feel even just sort of slightly similar to the type of relief that you get from getting up and moving around, right? So what it might be is, for example, just shifting your position. You might look at maybe having a different chair if that's kind of the problem, mm-hmm. right? So this is there isn't sort of a one-size-fits-all because mm-hmm. like we covered earlier, everybody's doing it for different reasons. So right. for you, you might mm-hmm. be just feeling really achy and uncomfortable in your chair. Um, so first I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin. So yeah, yeah. what I found actually as you're talking, it's making sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like... Um, 
I tend to stand a lot more. And mm. that's helping me. So I'm not sitting down and having to move, but I'm standing, which means that I can gently flex yes. my muscles without yes. being so disruptive. Yes. And I think, you know, I mean, that's pro- probably part of the reason why standing tables were created, right? Because there are people. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, and they feel a lot better with focus when they're able to stand and move around versus when they're sitting, they tend to find it difficult. So you see, there are all these little things that have been integrated into our daily lives that we probably don't even realize are triggered by stimming. Um, But, you know, when we look at any type of stimming behavior, the first thing we look at is whether there's a suitable substitute, right? So, for example, you know, what you're doing, if it isn't being disruptive to everyone else, then have at it but if it is for you then find certain ways that you can substitute so maybe not kind of place yourself in a seated position if you know you're going to be sitting down for a long meeting or a long conversation um kind of park yourself by the wall sort of standing if that would help um or kind of try out different sort of subtle shifts in your seating position at home and see if that helps with relief um so that can be something that you can do so that's kind of with that example um But sort of the main ones that we usually try to uh, intervene on are stims that could potentially hurt you. So like with kids Mm. who are head banging or spinning in circles or doing things like that where they could potentially get hurt. Um, Usually the suggestion is to try to move them away from the source of that potential harm um, to try to distract them. So if you have a child who is, for example, flapping, then Mm -hmm. what you want to do is just without judgment, without prosecution, very comfortably just kind of like pull their arms down to their side, distract them with a different task Mm -hmm. um, and just keep doing it. It's all about repetition um, so that the brain kind of knows like, oh, okay, I got to be more aware of the fact that I'm doing this action, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of in its sort of more milder self-management form. But in its extreme form, so say you've got a stim that is really really disruptive that's really out of control there are specialists who specialize in sensory integration therapy or si as we call it um who are able to give you step-by-step daily support um so that's what i normally do for kids who have very very challenging skills i was going to ask about that so it's all well and good for me as an adult woman Ooh. being able to communicate this but when you sort of trying to help a child that you Ooh. know are in the family they may not know exactly um what need is being met, right? Mm-hmm. For, so for them to communicate, like how would you suggest um, we kind of help help the kid and then sort of mm-hmm. also advocate for them and make the decision, okay, I'm not going to be able to help with this. I now need to go see somebody like you. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, with stimming, there's a lot of different functions, especially if you're dealing with a younger child or a child that has an underlying uh, developmental issue. So for us, we talked about how it's relieving some type of discomfort or helping us with boredom and kind of calming us down. But with children who are younger, children who are on, you know, the the autism spectrum, for example, it could have a higher meaning. So, for example, it could also be how they're expressing themselves due to a lack of language development. right? Right. So they're stimming to express anger, frustration, fear all of those things right Mm -hmm. and again because they don't have the language we're kind of uh, in a position where we have to anticipate those needs for them so if you are a parent and you have a child who is stimming and you're not yet sure if he or she's on the spectrum or if this is just a sensory issue or a behavioral issue the first thing that I tell them to do is to monitor the function of that behavior right so identify what was kind of happening just prior or during your child's stim so would it be Uh, something that's associated with a behavior behavior like he Mm. or she is unhappy that you've told them no or they're not getting their way um or is it that they're doing it while they're just sedentary watching tv um or are they doing it because um they're afraid of something or overtired 
or overtired. Um, and I think that's actually a really good one. Like a lot of kids do do that when they're overtired, yeah. right? So they tend to play up when they're sleepy. So there are things where I tell parents, take the time to watch your child. And a lot of parents who come to see me, I send them home with that task of monitoring their child very closely for about two weeks or more and tracking down when the stims happen. So this will allow us to identify if there's a pattern or some type of function to the stim. And so say you realize like, oh my gosh, um, my child... Yeah, so say for example, you come back and you realize that your child is very often doing these things as a response to being told no or being, uh, or being angry, then that is something that we can assume as part of their communication so we can help our child kind of understand that, right? right. So that's kind of what is really important, determining the function of the STEM. So you started anything. out this uh, when we were talking about disrupting others. Mm. Big question, um, does cracking your knuckles count as a stim? <laughs> oh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen knuckle cracking on the list, okay. but I'm sure in it's, some way it's very Asian, though, isn't it? I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm sorry, but a, I think in some way it might, it might be some type of a stim, right? Because I know um, it, it, it bothers a lot of other people, so I'm sorry when I do that. Okay, <laughs> but but the thing is also stimming, uh, kids on being on a spectrum, telling other people about it. How do you? do that how do you explain stimming we'll talk about that next it's interesting um sort of all these similarities we all seem to have here yes um but i think one of the the, the problems with the idea of stimming whether or not you're on the spectrum mm. or not whether or not it's disruptive or not there is still this perception out there and i think a lot of parents for example feel that they have to communicate their child's stimming um whether it's to the teacher in class to help them help the child or it's in the, the greater family or you know in in social sort of setups and stuff so how would you advise parents to help um so how would you advise parents mm. to handle the communication about their children's stim it's a very tricky one, right? Um, I, I feel so much for parents who you see sort of in public, like in malls and stuff like that with a child who's clearly got, you know, who's clearly having a stimming episode. Um, and, you know, the public doesn't really know very much about it. And often they get met with very sort of loud, very like uh, angry glares or some people will come up to you. And it's yeah. it's a very sort of, you know, difficult moment, right? And, mm, and I'm being a bad to, parent, basically. Yeah. yeah. I've even had to like even educate my own family who's seen, you know, kids having a huge meltdown, you know, a, obviously a sensory meltdown in a crowded mall. Um, and I've had, you know, parents make a comment and I'll just be like, no, that's that's not a child misbehaving. Right. Yeah. So I think that one part of it is that we do need to be more aware of what this is and, and being a lot kinder to each other. But if you have a child who has a stim, um, I always tell parents you're not really required to tell advertise it to everyone, right? But definitely need to communicate it with your teachers if it's something that you know your teacher needs to be in a supportive role for. Um, but the way that I kind of explain stimming to kids is I, I you know or to other people is I say that you know it's kind of very similar to you you know needing to crack your knuckles or needing to kind of do something that makes you feel more comfortable mm -hmm. um, and that's what stimming is it's just that the way that they are kind of changing their body position or the way that they're um, relieving that discomfort is a way that's very different to how you are doing it right so um, 
that's kind of how I would tell parents to just kind of address it, you know, and if your child is having a meltdown in a mall and you're getting sort of people coming at you and being angry at you, just, you know, understand that a lot of that just comes from not really knowing any better. So you don't have to give them a lecture on what stimming is, yeah. but you just kind of need to be able to say like, you know, I'm so sorry that I'm being this, you know, my child and I are disrupting your day. He's just having a little bit of a, a, of bad, a day. bad day. Yeah. yeah. He's and, having a bit of a bad day. And yeah. you know what? malls are the worst place for people who are sensitive sensory wise it's just a cacophony of noise which mm-hmm. it, you know sets me it sets most people that's off. a different conversation we had a conversation about music conversation and stuff like this so, yeah she does yeah I I, I I can't bear it, it makes me feel quite ill anyway yeah. moving on <laughs> moving on um let's talk about what kind of conversation we need to have or what we can start doing um, in order to stop asking children to normalize or mm. mask their behavior of their stim. I've mm. seen, in fact, I saw this obviously before the lockdown um, happened, but I was in a shop and it was a stationary shop and mm. um, the, the, the child was running the hands sort of up and down the, the pencil mm. cases, at, you know, and I do that. I like to feel mm. textures, right? Mm. Um, but was obviously really enthralled with all the, you know, the sensory sort of touch. Um, and the parent was basically quite aggressively sort of slapping the hand going, I told you yeah. to stop doing that. You shouldn't do that when you're out. People will see you, um, shame on you kind of thing. And mm. that broke my heart. And I, I went up to her and I literally in front of the mother, um, I was very naughty as an adult, but I just touched and went, oh, I like this one and how it feels best. Do you like this one? Which one's your favorite? Mm. As if to say poo-poo to mm. you to the mom. Cause, and I should have handled it better, I know, but I, I just feel so protective over kids who have to do that. So what do we do? I'm I'm smiling. I'm smiling because I think that that's exactly what should have been done. (laughs) Okay. okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like, you know, I think what you could do if your child is like that is to be able to go, oh, this one feels quite nice, doesn't it? How about this one? Do you like the color? Engage with them and then go, you know, but I think we should probably stop doing that because people are looking. So let's find something else that we can do, you know? So. The first thing we have to do is to take the the prosecution and the shame out of it, right? right. Because they can't help it, right? And I know, I, I feel exactly what you mean about sort of being so attracted to kind of like touching all the different textures. <laughs> yes. I do that. My mom's an interior designer. I went to fabric stores with oh, her growing wow, up. wow, you're life, so lucky. And I would just be that kid <laughs> in the corner going like... La, 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 la. Except the carpet, like, though. And like no one would be watching because I was this little kid running around, right? But, you know, in certain contexts, I think it puts parents in a lot of pressure because other people are watching you and your child, right? So don't be angry about it. Don't smack their hand. Don't do any of that. But just kind of come up to them and be like, do you like how this one feels, right? And they'll be like, yeah, mommy likes this one too. But how about we move on to something else and see if there's something over there? So diverting their attention, kind of acknowledging, helping them be aware that they're kind of doing it and then kind of shifting the focus to something else and kind of going, maybe we'll go home and we'll see if we can do this. Okay, don't do this at sight. Otherwise, people will watch, right? So you can tell them that it's not appropriate, but you don't have to be very angry or prosecutory or judgy about it. If that so, makes any sense. yeah, so basically it's treating it the same way you tell your sort of daughter not to lift up her skirts in public. So it's, it's a sort of a normalizing of yes. this is not a behavior that we, we do outside. For yeah. many hygienic reasons, for example, as well. Yeah. Um, so it's not about the stim sort of thing, but it's sort of boundaries yeah. on behavior. I love, I yes. love that very much. Yes. Technically, though, shouldn't like just to try to normalize things and how this should be a normal thing. Shouldn't systemically, shouldn't there be 
a campaign or something that we see mm-hmm. on TV or or whatever that says like this mm. is how it is. This stimming, mm-hmm. this is just very normal and everything. Maybe like uh, maybe the authorities need to come out. <gasps> you know, I've got a gr- great idea. Uh, when when things get a little bit open, you and I mm. are going to set up a, a festival or fair, and it's going to be called Copperfield, and we're going to invite everyone to just come and touch. Oh my god! Would yes. you like that? Should we that do that? Like an awesome idea! Yes, right. brilliant! Yes, so it's like a sensory play for adults. Yeah. Yes, and then let everyone see awesome. it. Yeah, let everyone see yeah. that this is how it is. This is what it's. This is just a, yeah. a normal yeah. thing. To awesome. Do. Yeah. 